Guys, good evening uh, and welcome to this Zoom debate organized by the Education Forum. Uh, after topping statues, is it time to rewrite the curriculum? My name is Kevin Rooney and I'm one of the organizers of the Education Forum and I'm a teacher uh, of history and politics and sociology. So you all very, very welcome. Um, we have four speakers tonight and each speaker will speak for roughly five minutes. When they're finished, I'll ask them maybe a question or two, and then I'll take it straight out to you, the audience, for your thoughts, questions, and contributions. Couple of wee things um, before we crack on. This discussion's being recorded, so if you speak and make a contribution and you particularly don't want your contribution on record, let us know, and we can um, make sure that that's taken out. Also, Anybody who knows me, I'm notorious for being an absolute Luddite. So can I just say from the start that I have Harley in the background pushing all the buttons, muting on muting people. And I'm also notorious for my computer not working very well and sort of breaking down during Zoom discussions. So we have Garth, Garth Sturdy in the background, who's ready to step in if um, my computer goes a little bit haywire and he will step in and share. So... Let me um, introduce the speakers, um, not in the order of the speaking, actually, but just in the order I have them written down. So speaking second out of the four is Tarjinder, uh, Tarjinder Gill. And Tarjinder is a longtime friend of the Academy of Education Forum. Um, and she writes quite a bit, speaks quite a bit on decolonizing the curriculum, as well as lots of other things. She's a primary school teacher and she's based in Leicester. Uh, Leicester, which is, of course is in lockdown at the moment. Um, speaking last, but absolutely not least, we have our own Dr. Alka Segal Cuthbert. Alka is a member of the Education Forum. She's an educator, researcher, and she's an author of What Should Schools Teach? And she's an absolute expert on the curriculum and the philosophy of the curriculum and has written and spoken on decolonizing the curriculum. And then we have speaking, um, um, next we have Gemma Reese, and Gemma is going to be speaking first. And Gemma is a student and hopes to go, uh, leave school and go to Manchester University to study anthropology in September. And um, she's very much uh, a supporter of, in the broad sense, Black Lives Matter. There's been a lots of the demonstrations around that and absolutely thinks we need to change the curriculum and decolonize it. I should say Tarjinder absolutely thinks we don't need to decolonize the curriculum. And Alka thinks decolonizing the curriculum is not the right question to ask. It's more about reforming the curriculum than decolonizing the curriculum. And then uh, we also have uh, the four speakers speaking third is Andre Ejegbonye. And Andre um, lives in Tottenham, goes to school in Tottenham and hopes in September to go away and study at Cambridge to study history. So that's our four speakers. Um, I want to tell you a story before we start um, about how this discussion came about. So everybody sort of very much kept in the loop. So a few weeks ago after the death of George Floyd uh, and the demonstrations and the Black Lives Matter protests in America and Britain, the toppling of statues and calls to decolonize the curriculum, I watched the discussion in absolute despair. And the reason why I followed the discussion with a broken heart is because it seemed that both sides of that debate were screaming at each other and hurling 
poisonous insults and toxic accusations. And I really wanted to debate decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and I proposed to the Education Forum Committee that we do this debate. And uh, many people in the Education Forum said to me, Kevin, absolutely not. We're not going to do this debate because the climate is bitter and spiteful and obnoxious. So that was basically the instant reaction of quite a few of the Education Forum members. And I understood that completely because it was a horrible atmosphere. If you go back a couple of weeks on both sides, people calling one side identitarians and the other side calling the other crowd fascist and so on and so forth. Next day, out of the blue, and I really do mean out of the blue, last year I used to teach in Tottenham. This year I'm at a different school, but I got a phone call from two, two of my students, ex-students, from when I taught in Tottenham, and that was Valerie and Andre. And Valerie and Andre are both black. And they they called me up and said, sir, how are you doing? Do you fancy meeting up um, for a wee cappuccino or a cup of tea or something? We're curious to pick your brains and what you think about the protest in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd and decolonizing the curriculum, et cetera. So the next day we met in the park for five hours on a beautiful sunny day. We had the most beautiful, brilliant debate and discussion about racism and anti-racism and identity politics and education and should we change the curriculum? And we didn't agree on a lot of things. We did on some, but others we didn't. But the main thing is it was such a wonderful, beautiful discussion where we sat and we listened. And I went away full of the joys of spring after that discussion. And this is a completely true story. The year before I taught in Tottenham, I taught in Watford. And one of my students was trying to track me down. And her name is Gemma. And Gemma's mixed race. Gemma has a lot to say about everything, about life, about politics. And she's a great believer that the curriculum should be decolonized. And she's been a lot of the protests in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. So we could talk and we had a great chat. And in the end, um, I asked Gemma and I asked Andre as well. I said, do you two fancy speaking in a, a debate, a discussion about decolonizing the curriculum? And both of them were really nervous, saying, well, we have never spoken that type of debate before, but they were both up for it. And so that's why when you look at our panel today, it might sound a little bit unbalanced at one level, because you've got the big guns, the big hitters of Targinder, and you've also got Alka. And on the other side, you've got like two students. And it might look as if this is lambs to the slaughter, but if anything, it's the exact opposite, apart from the fact that that would be patronising to Andre and Gemma, my ex-students, what, what I really wanted this discussion to be is, and this might sound cheesy, and I hope it comes across the right way, I wanted the discussion to be where we actually listen to each other. So as well as speaking, we listen, and we see what are the differences around this debate, and what, if any, common ground is there. So in the spirit of getting out of our silos and not hurling insults, and I'm not saying people listen have been doing that, but I'm really keen that we have an honest conversation. And very, very finally, before the conversation starts properly, I do want to just drop in, of course, poor Andre and Gemma nervous. And, uh, you know, bear with them if they you know, have a little nervous moment or so on and so forth. As soon as the four speakers speak, I'm absolutely keen to get your thoughts on this discussion. So I'll get out to you as soon as I can. So I think I've said enough. It's time to crack on. First person speaking is Gemma. Gemma, when you're ready, let's hear you. 
Can you all hear me first? Cool. Education should be about the pursuit of truth. It should be open-ended, uncensored and enriching, not closed, static, biased, and used as an indoctrination tool by powerful elites. That is why we should decolonize the curriculum. Over 300,000 people have signed an online petition in favor of teaching British children about the realities of imperialism and colonialism. Half a million people signed a petition to battle racism by updating the GCSE reading list by adding books such as Why I Am No Longer Talking to people, white, white People About Race and Good Immigrant to the GCSE reading list. Curriculum change should threaten no one. It is about bringing in new voices, experiences and interpretations that have been marginalised. George Floyd's brutal murder has changed things. It has provoked a worldwide debate. There has been an awakening of people wanting to educate themselves on both racism today and in Britain's past. There has been a nationwide recognition that the current curriculum has failed both white and black people looking for answers. Where some people see a problem in improving the curriculum, the majority of the young generation see a solution. Let's broaden the curriculum and learn about Britain's history, all of it. Let's continue to have the conversation about not demolishing the current curriculum, but using it to build upon to continue to celebrate white people's achievements already in the curriculum, but to also make more space to learn about the BAME experiences that have been forgotten and accomplishments that have been left behind. How many people, for example, have heard of Ignatius Sancho, the great composer, actor, writer, and only Briton of African heritage known to have been eligible to, and voted in the 18th century? Another example of wasted black talent is Chinua Achebe, the writer of Things Fall Apart, the most widely read book in modern African literature, a book about African tribes before British colonial rule, which tackles misconceptions surrounding both race and slavery. Achebe purposefully wrote his books in English to allow for the narrative to be more widely accessible, but like many more tales, this one too was left behind. One of the gifts of education, from music to English, is that there should be scope and range when it comes to interpretation and depiction. Therefore, a broader range of influence would allow for students to become more knowledgeable and capable of forming their own judgments. As a recent Sparked Ice call by Alcaris quotes, education is not about therapy. It is about expanding and deepening pupils' capacities to become more autonomous thinkers, able to make better judgments for themselves, end of quote. My response is that the current curriculum is therapy for white, middle-class students, who are not taught Britain's uncensored history and pampered to by a curriculum that is centred around white comfort. This is proved by the fact that the current national curriculum includes no statutory element of black history and from key stages two to four includes no key examples of black history within Britain, despite black history being part of British history. How can make people make judgments when not presented with the whole unedited truth how can we produce critically thinking young individuals from an educational system that has starved them of the truth, either deliberately or by omission? For example, I was never taught that until as recently as 2015, the British taxpayer was still paying back compensation to ex-slave owners. I was never taught about the atrocities of the Bengal famine. I was never taught about Churchill's belief in white supremacy and eugenics. And I was never taught that 150,000 Kenyans were forced at gunpoint into detention camps. My point is that the current curriculum is distorted. But as the saying goes, history is written by the victors. History is not about ignoring the hard parts that we do not want to hear. It's about truth, 
interpretation, debate and honest inquiry. However, the lack of black history and attention to Britain's misdeeds is itself a political judgment of, and of the curriculum and is meant that throughout the years, Britain's history has been taught through rose-tinted glasses. The clearest example of how the curriculum can be used for political gain is Clause 28, a law passed in 1988 by a Conservative government that stopped councils and schools from promoting homosexuality. It is now widely recognised that not allowing teachers to educate children on gay relationships negatively affected the well-being of children and isolated many young gay students, which therefore illustrates the importance of not neglecting other minority groups within the modern curriculum of a country with ever-changing demographics. The idea that Britain is where it is today because, as coined by Boris Johnson, we have an innate ability to regress, feeds into this white Eurocentric guilt-free complex. It is dangerously political and an abdication of responsibility to ignore the reactionary and barbaric elements of our island story, to coin a phrase by Michael Gove. That is why group Black Curriculum and Black History Month must exist to fight for our right to be taught. In an ideal world, we would not need a Black History Month. History would be history, not segregated on the basis of race. But surely the fact that there is one shows that there are gaps in the current curriculum. It is my feeling that by exposing children to different cultures, religions and ethnicities, we are addressing possible prejudice and ignorance from developing. For example, after the Windrush scandal, an independent report for government titled Windrush Lessons Learned found that the Windrush scandal could have been avoided if all home for staff had been educated in the country's colonial past. The moral of the story is this. A deeper and more honest approach to the curriculum, both past and present, would benefit everyone be they black, white, or the various seas of humanity that make up modern Britain today. To conclude, changing the curriculum doesn't have to be a fight. It can be an open, honest conversation about taking the good bits and addressing the shortcomings in order to make British education better reflect the diversity of the students in the classroom. Dead on, Gemma. Thank you very much. Good start. And straight over to yourself, Tarjinder. Right, okay, so um, I'm not going to, I might just address some of Gemma's points afterwards, but I'll just start off with the kind of things that I was going to say. Um, so in terms of decolonising the curriculum, I think my issue from with the slogan right from the start has been that it's been imported from elsewhere, and there's a tendency to import ideas and slogans from other countries, um, the settler colonies, the US, Australia, South Africa, um, maybe not Australia so much, but you know, the US and South Africa, and use their frameworks for us and it's like you're it's being imposed on us so i think we need to actually say right okay we need to remove some of these ideas because they're not helpful because we're not a settler colony so even the idea of black and white history actually does not make sense in this country this country is not majority white by design it's majority white by dint of history and i think we have to be able to be honest about that um to say anything else is to say that um the original settlers who crossed the dogland did so on purpose to create some sort of white state and that's just not true and the fact they wouldn't even have, we don't even know what color they were particularly um and all those human beings up until sort of the idea of scientific racism really came back so that's what we, what we mean by that kind of racial thinking um some of those you know particularly early on they wouldn't even have known they were white so some of this factually does not make sense to a lot of people and it doesn't make sense because actually it's not quite correct it's applying ideas from the present or present understanding 
um, to the past. And that's kind of where sometimes things go wrong, I think, when people are communicating. And particularly because I think a lot of this is London-centric, um, outside of London, there's going to be a lot of people who kind of balk at some of this stuff and not for the reasons that, that probably Gemma or Andre would think. Um, so I think sometimes this is set up in a way that makes us in conflict with one another, but I'll explain that a little bit more later. So what, what's usually referred to in terms of the um, curriculum being colonial, we talk about history and English. I'm going to leave English to Halka, actually, because I'm not going to go there particularly. Um, but if you look at the curriculum, we're talking about the history of the British Isles. Um, our history curriculum from Key Stage 1 all the way up has got to cover everything from the earliest settlement all the way to the present day. We're not the US, we're not other countries. We've got thousands of years of history to cover. It's, you know, that is just out there. We have a lot of history to cover. So white, black, whatever, it doesn't matter. We've still got a lot and we have to make choices. Now, when we're making choices, we're not going, oh, yes, let's put white history on. Let's leave other things off. At the moment, we've got a real focus on powerful knowledge, and that has to come from whichever um, period going. So I would always justify putting Roman history on, because actually, if you look at the world outside, you wouldn't understand an awful lot of it if you didn't know about the Romans, place names, Roman numerals, etc., etc., compared to, say, the Georgians, who I wouldn't. So this, that's two periods of white history, supposedly white history. But I'm justifying why I'm putting one on, not the other. So curriculum choices aren't that straightforward. Also, um, I would say that, that is British and part of British history is colonial history, just because we did have an empire. So we're unusual as a country in that respect. So we've got to deal with this empire history, which other countries don't have to. Sometimes it's part of their, um, their history, like in India, but it's not something they've got to think about internally and externally. And I think we have to separate those two things out as well and really look at what was going on within the island and what was going on elsewhere. Because, again, those things tend to be conflated at times. That's not helpful. It's certainly true that sort of the Whig version of history was taught. Now, I think, again, what a lot of people don't appreciate is that across the country, people have not had a uniform experience of this curriculum, ever, <laughs> if, if, if we're honest. We've never had a prescriptive curriculum that every single person has learned. Um, and this kind of idea, again, I think comes from the US where there was something along those lines, but here it hasn't been. What we consider the modern schooling system really only happened after the Second World War. And since then, you know, we've had sort of immigrant children. Yes, a lot of those people would have um, been taught a Whig version of history, probably sort of similarly. But I think it's also think we have to look back and go, there's a period of time where it wasn't clear whether we were going to be staying or going. And that gets missed out of all sorts of um, discussions, actually. It wasn't clear what was happening. And it also wasn't clear, I don't think, to those teachers um, what impact they were having because they just couldn't have known. And I think we have to be a bit more understanding of the past and the people in it and not just sort of assume malicious intent. I don't think they were deliberately teaching white history to black children. That's not what was happening. They were teaching history and not realising um, the impact of some of the stereotypes or not getting to the point, like not really understanding what to do about it either. So slowly over time, these things changed. Obviously, we we're more settled. We knew we were staying. But we've got to remember that, you know, someone like me, even in the early 1980s, my parents were still talking about going home. Okay, so this, it, it wasn't like we came, we were definitely going to stay here and we were definitely going to be part of it. And it's very similar for the Eastern Europeans now. When we're talking about representation on the curriculum, we've got to say there's a lot of movement. There's a lot coming back and forth. It's not clear what's going on with, these, with some of these groups. So chopping and changing the curriculum is easy to say from the outside, but it's much harder to do from the inside. One minute left, Kinder. 
Oh, flip it. Oh, no, no, no. I've got loads to say. Okay. So I think in terms of the curriculum, we've already always had this issue of prescription versus what's loose. So if we want a prescriptive curriculum, fine. Everybody learns the same. But the idea that we're going to be able to represent every single group on there is just liberal overpromising. We've done it over and over again. I think we just need to stop and say, no, it's not possible. We can't represent every, every group. We have to think of other ways to do it. Also, I think there's a tendency to want to um, compensate for the family and community, which is broken down, which would have given identity and representation, all these kind of things, and put it on the curriculum. And again, the curriculum just can't do what people want it to do. So we have to be honest, like, what are we going to do? So a concept-driven history is much better um, for us, I think, because it's actually history for the sake of history. If we're not going to teach history as a subject, and we're going to use it for other purposes, it will always get lost. You'll have a disjointed curriculum and you end up not meeting the purposes that people think it will meet. Um, and no one really has got the research on representation and identity and a whole, like a large scale one, um, to prove that it's actually going to do this. And so, again, people are repeatedly disappointed. They double down. They want more history, more black history or more Asian history. But they're not really understanding that, hang on, maybe it just doesn't do what you want it to do in the way you want it to do it. Maybe that's the problem. Um, and sort of last but not least, in terms very of teaching, funny. yeah, sorry, in terms of teaching thing, you know, anything related to critical race theory at the moment, my like my consideration at the moment is, it's actually a really difficult field of study to to teach. It doesn't have the disciplinary tools to establish truth. So we don't actually, if we're teaching this the way that some people are being taught at a university, which they're being taught it as fact, quite frankly, we would actually be breaching political neutrality in our schools. And I think this needs to be understood by sort of younger people. This is not a straightforward issue. This is quite a serious issue for teachers. And some of what's going on, some of the sort of almost pushing teachers into doing this with, you know, really quickly without thinking has got some serious consequences for teachers, for the curriculum, all the rest of it. People might think that, hang on, this is a useful breaking of the law, but actually it isn't. There's more to it. Some of us actually do view teaching those interpretations the way that they've been taught elsewhere as political indoctrination themselves. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, And Andre, straight over to you when you're ready. Curriculum is all about power. Decisions about what knowledge to teach are an exercise of power and therefore a weighty ethical responsibility. What we choose to teach confers or denies power. To say that people should learn the best that has been thought and said is never adequate. Start the conversation and questions about whose knowledge, who decides on best. Such questions reflect concern about whether schooling reproduces inequalities or interrupts them. These are not my words, but I agree with them. They're in fact the words of Christine Council, one of the leading authorities on the history curriculum and now an advisor to this current government. Please understand that it's not only Black Lives Matter and young woke students that are pointing out the flaws of our current curriculum. Decolonizing the curriculum should involve a greater level of diversity in the topics taught, specifically from key stage two to four. Let me be clear. I think that some of these topics covering Britain's colonial past and the racist treatment of people in its empire needs to be mandatory. The problem we have is that Britain's impact on the world and its peoples is presented in a way that excuses its misdeeds and mistakes for, makes for a dishonest narrative. Why is there no space for alternative interpretations of our history in the curriculum? For example, Dr. Miranda Kaufman's Black Tudors, David Olashoga's Black and British, Professor Hazel Carby's Imperial Intimacies, and even Akala's Natives. These are recent, thoroughly researched publications, 
which detail British history in a pre-colonial, colonial and post-colonial context. Of the four authors I just mentioned, I've personally attended three of their talks and managed to discuss with them, albeit briefly, the importance of widening the narrative Britain chooses to tell about its history. These authors draw our attention to the misery and exploitation of people within the empire, whose suffering was the price paid to make Britain great. If we don't create the space in our education system for these alternative interpretations of our history, then we will continue to suffer from amnesia. This amnesia was precisely what caused the fiasco of the Windrush scandal only two years ago. When I say we need to change the curriculum, it's not in any way to erase white history or the many positive elements of our nation's story, but it's to correct a moral and educational wrong, which is that right now we sell our young people short when it comes to understanding exactly how it is that we got where we are today. The former education secretary, Nikki Morgan, who helped oversee the five-year redevelopment of the curriculum initiated by Michael Gove in 2010, stated in 2015, at the heart of the reforms was a determination to place knowledge back at the core of what pupils learn in school. What knowledge exactly are young people being taught? The history curriculum emphasizes the mistakes of Russia, America, Germany, and Italy in terms of their ideological missteps, but not a close enough look is taken at the actions made by Britain, which have had visible, devastating, and bloody long-term effects on many countries around the world. For example, why did the majority of young people not get to learn about the British partition of India, which left 2 million dead and 14 million displaced? Why is it that most young people don't get taught about the roots of the Israeli-Palestine conflict, originating due to Britain's involvement in that region? If it's mandatory for students in Germany to learn about the atrocities of the Holocaust and the world wars, why can't it also be mandatory for British students to learn about the negative impacts of the British Empire? I think Britain's influence and actions are either glamorized or forgotten. This gives historians such as David, Dr. David Starkey the legitimacy to claim, quote, slavery was not a genocide, otherwise there wouldn't be so many damn blacks in Africa or Britain. An awful lot of them survived. Unquote. Comments he made only last week whilst presenting slavery and colonial rule as a positive thing in the name of globalization. This manipulation of history even extends the Industrial Revolution, which downplays the role of imperial exploitation. Some well-intentioned schools think that Black History Month should try and compensate for a Eurocentric curriculum. But however well-intentioned, this is a tick-box exercise and gesture politics where still you can be guaranteed that Black History Month will talk about slavery and the poor black slaves only to be freed because of the actions of people like William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln, reducing black people into passive victims dependent on the actions of altruistic white men. No mention of black agency and wonderful inspiring figures like the story of Toussaint Louverture and his leadership of self-liberated slaves in the Haitian Revolution. Surely any good history would have to include the seminal impact of one of the first slave rebellions to succeed. But very few Britons even know who Louverture is. To conclude, it has become clear to me that calls to decolonize the curriculum are being understood by some as an attempt to enforce a politically correct agenda. This is anything but the truth. Rather, this is an attempt to correct a one-sided history in order to broaden young people's minds so that they become more rounded, critical thinkers. It would be sad if either side reduced this into a polarized culture war. 
If we approach this debate in the right way, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. It can be a win-win for all of us. Thank you, Andre. Thank you very much. And last but not least, yourself, Olga. Okay, thank you. Can everyone hear me? Yeah, okay. So, um, well, thank you. It's a topic really close to my heart. Um, and I think it's more important than commonly understood. Um, I agree, just echoing Andre's point. Uh, it would be wrong to see this as like a latest example of PC, either PC gone mad or a sign of a kind of great eth educational or ethical leap forward. And um, Gemma, I'm always, always open to Chinua Achebe. I love him and I've got quite, quite a, I have little fantasies of constructing a new course in English literature, which uh, he would figure in. But anyway, what I would like to say is that I'm supportive of revising the curriculum, as Kevin said at the beginning, but not of decolonizing it. Um, and I'm just going to plunge in and say my points and then some may be picked up uh, later. <clears throat> so first of all, I think, you know, the developments of the 20th century, which include mass immigration, the development of pre what we call previously third world nations to the point where the previous models of developed, undeveloped nations don't really fit anymore. We've had such um, incredible developments in, in places, including my uh, country I was born in India. You know, it would be foolish to think that such shifts don't have consequences for culture and for knowledge production, good and bad. Um, and I think, um, you know, I think what we've you know, what's often overlooked is that with the expansion of education globally, we've got more scholars with a greater range of approaches and interpretations, and some names have already been mentioned. And I think this is really a good thing, right? This is the material basis, if you like, for reviewing a curriculum with a view to making it more universal rather than less universal. I think we also know much more about what disciplinary knowledge is and how it actually has been the product of collective efforts over time and space. And it belongs to us all, even if access to it is far from universal, and even if in the past, and even today, um, the appropriation of the institutions, if you like, where knowledge is, um, where knowledge is transmitted, uh, uh, have been appropriated by the rich and powerful. I want to argue that the intellectual and aesthetic and imaginative processes by which we as individuals appropriate the world through knowledge and imagination um, are, are universal and, and they, they have to remain relatively autonomous. So in other words, I'm laying the basis for disagreeing with the concept of there being a black history as such, but that may become across in a bit later. So um, I think as, as has been indicated, some scholars and teachers are really interested in doing this and it's sort of happening in a but it's a minority what is also happening that is given a much bigger voice and is has a much broader kind of basis a kind of is a much wider kind of ethical political cultural kind of tussle going on and to me it's like a tussle for legitimacy for who has the ultimate authority to select knowledge, to, to legitimise and delegitimise knowledge. Now, I don't think the contemporary calls to decolonise the curriculum are calling for of a kind of broadening or deepening that has been alluded to and that I would support. I think the, for, for most, um, you know, the aim is for, to use a curriculum to eradicate racism in order to strengthen Britain's institutions' commitments to equal opportunities. 
and it, it, might, it reminds me of like a petri dish model of society where you have kind of enlightened people who see schools as a petri dish they can conduct social experiments to reform social values and norms which are more in keeping with the ones they hold um, and I think I, I have a kind of too many objections to this thesis which I think is that as it stands it, it redefines a materialist understanding it redefines racism um, as one, as a problem of microaggressions in the symbolic sphere, if you like, in the cultural sphere. And only white people can be guilty of such psychological offences because of the privilege of having white skin and therefore not having had to experience race, racist hurts. Now, I think as individuals, we've all got the power to be hurtful or offensive or kind. I don't know if any of you watched the programme on how to, uh, the school that was trying to end racism but I mean, I just thought it was it was uh, really appalling, actually, um, you know, because it's like reading, you know, kids can be rude and insulting. And sometimes that can take a racialized form. But the idea that that power at an individual level of five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 15 year olds is the same kind of power as the power of governments to outsource control of immigration to authoritarian regimes that are holding people back from coming into this country, most people of brown and black skin, or the power of immigration police to repeatedly raid shops in East Ham, you know, tooled up to the eyeballs to try and catch people who may or may not have legal status as citizens, but nevertheless they remain, they have the status as human beings, or the, agree, the, power, the, the power that we see in the egregious kind of cases of uh, police police racial profiling, or government and local authorities and businesses to provide the services and goods that we all need. I mean, I just think that, that that's just, you know, ludicrous, that, that idea that there's just one big blob of power that exists from people from when they're born according to their skin colour and then grows and leads to these kinds of things is, I think, simplistic and reductive. Um, I think the materialist version of structural racism is, frankly, it's not an educational phenomenon. It's a socio-political and economic phenomenon of the adult world. It's complex and it inheres in the way social production at societal level is organised. And I think to fight it requires building a lie. It means understanding the nature of the problem as fully as possible. It means building alliances with others who may not share your experiences and ideas and to persuade these other people, you need to have a compelling account of what the problem is, and you have to be open to negotiating and working out livable compromises. For me, the person who really epitomizes this best is actually Frederick Douglass in his speech that he made um, at the, uh, in Lincoln Park um, on the unveiling of the Freedom Movement statue. And it's just a beautiful speech. I really recommend everybody to read it because it shows such a, a complex and deep understanding of, he's very critical of Lincoln and um, some attitudes and advices that were made, but nonetheless, he's able to see the significance as he recognizes that despite the efforts of black people themselves, to win that fight, you need to make alliances and you need to make alliances with people who perhaps have more, do have more power. Um, and I think instead of that, what decolonizing discourses today offer us is a preference for microaggressions, which are all about training children to have difficult conversations and look deeply into themselves. 
And this kind of process isn't to grasp complex meanings of literature or understand why I need to get to grips with particular mathematical formulas. No, instead we've got this obsessive um, introspection. Um, I know this is not what people have been talking about, even talking about um, expanding the curriculum. But like I said, that's one discussion going on in one strata. In the broader public sphere, it, this is what we're getting. This translates as microaggressions, training into getting young kids to look, look more and more into themselves. And it's like a new form of therapeutic indoctrination to raise self-esteem. But it's really, it, it's completely authoritarian because any exploration has to arrive at foregone conclusions. Got two choices. If you're white, you're the bearer of implicit bias that strips you of any moral authority to question claims or have a valid opinion. And I would really urge you to watch um, the, the documentary as an example of that. One minute left. I'll go. The option is silent atonement. If you're black, you're the bearer of moral authority solely on the grounds of victimhood. I think the only way of that making sense is to see people as really lacking any individual agency and being defined by group traits. For the curriculum, I think this has really destabilizing consequences because it distorts knowledge, right? It reduces it to a simplified monocausal thing. And this is, I don't think there's black or white history, there's good or bad history. The better history will be multivariable, it will have different, it will acknowledge different causes. The history of empire in India is not one unmitigated. Um, tale of tragedy and doom and gloom by any means. Um, I think I'll stop there and then perhaps I've got examples if people want to ask me. Thank um, you. Thank you very much, Alka. Um, guys, can I explain the plan of action now? Um, in a very short time, I'm going to go out and take hands, quest, people who want to speak, make contributions, that would be great, um, or ask questions. I want to ask each of the speakers a question. But I don't want you to answer the question yet, speakers. When I ask you the question, think about it. I'm going to go out to the audience, take three or four contributions, come back, and then pick up the question if you want. Gemma, the question I want to ask you is, do you think that education and the curriculum is about affirming someone's identity or transcending it? In other words, what I want to ask you, Gemma, is, is there a danger here that you're being trapped by identity politics and that it's not feasible to just try and portion out a little bit of education for the black students, a little bit for the white students, a little bit maybe for the mixed race students? Is, is that not, um, not a very productive way to handle education? I would love you to come back on that. Tarjinder, the question I have for you is, you talk about critical race theory and Alka brings in microaggressions and unconscious bias. And I think there's debates to be had about those things. But I'm wondering, are you in danger in this discussion of setting up a straw man to knock it down? So when you think about what Andre is talking about and what Jem is talking about, do you disagree with their arguments around reforming the curriculum? So I'd like you to engage more directly with those type of arguments. Andre, I know you well. People might be shocked by my question, but here goes. So you talk at the start about inequality, power inequality, etc. And I'm looking at a young black man from Tottenham 
who's about to go to Cambridge. So you've done all right. Thank you very much. Where's all this inequality in the education system that you're talking about? Is there a danger here that you're presenting almost a form of victim politics when actual fact, it seems to me the education you're having is first class and you're benefiting from it. So I'd like you to come back on that. And Alka, the question <coughs> is a question I've been wanting to ask you for quite a while. You, you put forward this idea that there are these academic experts who develop knowledge in the curriculum, epistemology, main specific um, knowledge, et cetera, within disciplines. But my question to you is, in the real world, is it not the case that schools are a microcosm of society politically and socially? And whether you like it or not, our curriculum largely is a product of politics and power inequalities, and you can't get away from that. So those are the sorts of things I would like you to maybe come back on if you want to. However, we're going to go straight out now to questions. We'll take three or four, and then we'll go back to the speakers, let them answer, and then we'll go back out for another round. And the first hand I see is Toby Marshall, and after Toby Marshall, it'll be Josephine Hussey. Hello. Um, thank you to the speakers. I thought they were excellent um, contributions. I just want to respond uh, to Andre because I think he, he offered a really um, interesting perspective uh, on this debate and I'd like to agree and disagree with him. Toby, um, let me just tell you, you're, you're not coming across very well. Toby, Andre, you argued that the curriculum is about power. Um, I think curriculum... Okay, I'll speak up a bit. Is that better? It is. Um, I just wanted to say to Andre that I agreed and disagreed with what he said. And I thought, um, and I thought it was very interesting. Andre, you said that the curriculum is about power. I think the curriculum is about truth. Um, and I don't believe anybody has anything to fear from truth, particularly young people. And there is a bit of a fragility in this discussion on both sides. Um, where I agree with you is that I think if you're going to give an account of Britain, you have to give an account of modern British history, which includes an imperial history. And I'd add to your list, you, you mentioned India and Palestine. There's a place closer to home, Ireland. Um, Toby, which, I'm going to come in. Sure, you ought to be the history of the... Toby, you're not clear, so I'm going to move on. to be part of the British history. Um, okay. And... Um, I don't think you can indoctrinate students to think one way or the other about Irish history. Um, it would be part of a modern um, account of Britain. There's a, there's a fact there, which is only 48% of students who study history in this country. I think Toby has stopped, but his audio is still going. Okay. Oh, my God. Okay. We'll go on with Josephine, if you can hear us, Josephine. Hello, yes. Um, am I okay? 
Thank God you are, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I was quite interested in what Andre said about starting with key stage two. And it kind of got me thinking. I'm a primary school teacher and I teach year five, six. I also used to teach reception year one. And when I was teaching year one, we were doing the Victorians. And one of the children said to me, Mrs. Hussey, I don't believe the Victorians existed. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, it's in black and white. And so, you know, I, it kind of got me thinking when he was talking about it, you know, what, would, what changes would I make? And I think what we have to remember with Key Stage 2 is they're seven when they go into Key Stage 2. And they're quite narcissistic. Everything's very self-centred. So in Key Stage 1, you start with this country, both <coughs> geograph geographically and quite simple history. And really what you're doing in primary school is you're trying to develop historical sort of thinking. So you get them to think about artifacts and timelines and things like that. And actually what we do do, I think, is um, responding to um, Tajinda's point, is we deal with kind of settled history. So we do the Romans, we do the Greeks, we, we cover the World War actually, and, and we cover the Second World War in Key Stage 2, and we start to open questions then. We don't present the British as, you know, all the, the good guys. Um, we start, but we have to only start to open those questions because of their maturity. Um, in geography, we go and we talk about the Mayan civilizations. We talk about the old civilizations that were colonized by people. But I think one of the problems is the recent history, as Tajinda was talking about, is quite unsettled. And, and so at which point, I suppose my question is, at which point are you mature enough to really be able to talk about and understand the intricacies of what is quite recent history? Thank you very much, Josephine. And if, if the next two speakers speak fast, I'm going to get three more people in before we go back to the actual platform. I've got Chrissy Daz next, and then after that I've got Jagdish. And if we're quick, we'll get Nathan in before we go back as well. Chrissy. Do I, am I unmuted? You're spot on. Okay. Um, I just, um, yesterday I just started reading um, Eric Williams' book, Capitalism and Slavery. Um, and given all of the discussion that's been going on the last few weeks over these sorts of issues, it is quite a, a refreshing thing to be reading because William Eric Williams, who was a, um, a radical black Caribbean um, anti-colonial uh, political thinker and historian, does not attempt to engage with us at any point on the level of identifying with any of the characters. He is simply uh, pursuing a, a, view, a view of history which is about how this thing caused that thing, what were the various uh, factors going on and the conditions and all of this sort of thing. Um, and this brings me on to my main point, really, which I think most of the discussion about um, the curriculum is about the content. And I think history is very, very vast. And as um, I think it was Alka, but I can't remember, someone mentioned before that... Um, that you have to select because you can't do the whole of history. So you will be making judgments on what bits you look at. And um, But what seems to me is more important discussion rather than what we are being taught or what we are teaching is how we go about it. 
how we um, how we think about um, the methods used in understanding um, history, um, because um, it's completely pointless, I think, to think of, of history as a subject in which you find any sort of engagement on a personal level with the people that existed in the past. Because yeah, apart from recent history, they're all dead anyway. Most of them um, were probably very shady characters. Um, and it's much more important to, I think, begin to develop some sense of how things maybe uh, tended to happen, how things tended to fall out in the past and pull back as far as possible from any moral judgment or engagement on that sort of therapeutic level. And that way of Thank thinking you. makes really black and white history um, just not concepts that exist. Thank, thank you, Chrissy. So no time for empathy there from Chrissy. Jagdish. <coughs> Hello, everybody. Hiya. I think one of the, there's a danger in here that uh, we start to kind of, uh, I think history and politics are interlinked. You cannot, history is basic, history is written by, that either people in power or people whoever's writing the history is based on the lens through which they see uh, the events that are unfolding in front of them. And I think we can't separate the two. So you can't teach history as a separate <laughs> subject without teaching people politics and political analysis because, you know, like, for example, the Brexit thing, the people remainers and Brexiters, whose, you know, whose history is the right history? And in future, we'll probably find out whose history it is. But I think the dangers in some of these... Uh, not just the Black Lives uh, Matters, but also the, the Me Too movement, is the, the way in which discussion and different views are being stifled. You know, and as much as I dislike Starkey, I would like people like Starkey to be able to be exposed to debate so that he can be, we can debate with him and show people the fallacy of those kind of views rather than hound him out, uh, which I think is, is not, uh, not the right way to go. I mean, I, I, was, I grew up in Kenya. I mean, the history we were taught was... That there's a guy called John Speak who came and discovered Lake Victoria. And I just believed it. It's only when I was older and I realized, hang on a minute, what about the local people who are actually living, fishing and on Lake Victoria? Uh, you know, and I, I felt like such a fool because I just believed everything that was told. So I think there is an element of learning about history, but it depends on which political lens you actually look at it. My son Thank did you. history here. And Jack, history, do you mind if I rush you a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'm just going to conclude. So my son's history was taught, well, history in England is about kings, queens, and people, and armies and wars, and that's it. The history of the 95% of people in Britain was never been told. And I mean, you know, Kevin, you're probably, you know, you could tell a lot about Ireland and Irish history and how history is written by, you know, the, the people are victors. And there is a way of people romanticizing the thing or assuming that all white people are racist and all black people are victims. And to those people, I would say, you know, just have a look around at Saudi Arabia, look at India, look at Kenya, look at those countries where the people who are effective, if you like, black in power, and you will find that, you know, it's not as simple as uh, color. It's all down to politics. You have to look at history through the lens of politics. Thanks. Thank you, Jagdish. I'm, I'm going to squeeze one more in, which is Nathan. If you can be quick, Nathan, that would be great. After... Am I unmuted? Yes. I'm on? Okay. Um, yeah, I wanted to respond to the um, 
the lady who was first and then I, I think the chap who was um, third. So the ones arguing for decolonizing and, and for broadening. And I would say I, I'm a teacher myself. And um, I think the curriculum is narrow in some ways. And, and I mean, I, I disagree with uh, their perspective on British history and on European history. And so what I would say is that I, I'm all for it being broadened. I'm all for more time for history in the first place. And then, yeah, bringing in these other stories, bringing in these other civilizations, bringing in these um, other uh, histories of other places. But if it's going to be done, then it should be done with the same rigor as uh, the British and the European uh, uh, histories are studied with. And I think that would... Um, that would be welcome for people like me because it would give some sort of comparison. You know, the way the British Empire is talked about, the way British history is talked about, the class system or whatever else, is it's like um, this is the history of exceptional brutality. This is unique in, uh, in, in, in having uh, oppressed uh, other groups, in having uh, carried out massacres and whatever else. And if you bring in these other histories seriously, and subject them to the same kind of rigor, I think you'll quickly find out that actually it's the people like Akala, it's the people like Eno, uh, sorry, any Renault Lodge who are Eurocentric because they only focus on uh, the European history in a serious, critical way. They don't give a critical look to these other histories. So, what I'm saying is bring it all in, bring in the empires of Africa, bring in the Middle East and whatever else, and you'll quickly find that actually this uh, uh, critical race theory is bunk, basically. Yes, thank, thank you very much, Nathan. Thank you very much indeed. Speakers, my four speakers, I know it's going to be tough, but do you mind being really concise so we can get back out? I know I'm giving you an impossible task. Perhaps just really focus on the particular question or issue you want to get stuck into, and if I can give you each a minute or not much more, who would like to go first? I think I'll go Tarjinder. Kick off, Tarjinder. Right, okay. I mean, I'm going to sort of tell a little story. I'll tell it as fast as I can. When I worked in Brixton, um, I did write, and afterwards I wrote a series of blogs, which is why Kevin and etc. Um, know who I am. I actually do agree with Andre and, and Gemma in the sense that it's not enough. I actually did want to put it on the curriculum. I did want to have multiple interpretations. I did want to have different um, representations of, um, and more positive representations of, of not just black um, people, not just people in general, um, but also sort of have black British history as well as other history as well. Um, I basically went for the job. I didn't get it. So that in itself tells you everything because actually there was a real pushback against that idea. Now I'd come from a background where I'd been taught quite a lot of colonial history as part of my history um, curriculum when I was a child. So 30 years later, you've got to understand that I was then being told that this was controversial. That's what I mean by the idea that there's been different histories taught across the country. You can't take your personal experience and generalise because it's just not true. You know, I, I did. I turned up to London going, what do you mean there's no black history on the curriculum? What do you mean they don't teach different interpretations of the empire? Because I'd literally learned it on the curriculum. So that's like a head wreck. Um, I agree with them on a lot of those issues in terms of multiple interpretations, multiple examples. I actually have, um, so in terms of Christine Council, I actually did, um, when I was in Great Yarmouth, teach the curriculum, the history of like using concepts, a concept-based history. And it does in itself lead, lead to diversity. So Andre's right. Yeah, if you have that kind of curriculum, you actually can do that. But it's not tokenistic and we cannot 
um, have a situation where every single person says, oh, but I would like to have learnt this, I would like to have learnt this, I would like to have learnt this. We cannot cater for the personal preferences of every single person. You've got to accept that some things you'll have to learn by yourself when you're older. Thank you, Tartienda. Andre, why don't you kick in next? Um, first, I'd like to agree with you when you say that the curriculum is about truth, but I feel like there is also power in terms of what truth is being presented and how it's been presented, whether things are being omitted or things haven't been included yet. And I definitely agree with you when you talk about how when it comes to 14 to 16 year olds, only 48% um, actually study history. So then essentially you get half of the students who are still in education, not learning about the same history that other people are going to learn about then carry on. And I feel like that's also a problem where you have like people, that's where the amnesia develops in my opinion. Um, and then on Josephine's point, um, in terms of key stage two and maturity, um, I remember when I was in key stage two between the years five to six, that's when we learned about the Holocaust. And we learned about that through multiple mediums, through actual history lessons, through English reading, the boy in the striped pajamas, through watching them film as well. And of course, at that time, I understand that you're trying to develop a foundation of knowledge for young people to work with, which they can eventually you know, develop in secondary, A-level, but at the same time, I feel like in the years five to six particularly, there is a level of maturity that we can entrust them with the Holocaust. So we can also entrust them with, you know, say we use African civilizations before colonialization. That's something we can also put on them or other types of examples which aren't, ev which aren't very Eurocentric or very Anglo-centric. Um, Andre, I'm going to stop you. Okay. You answered brilliantly, but the clock's going to beat us, so I'm going to move on. Alka, give us your brief thoughts on anything. Okay, yes, thank you. Um, yes, I, I mean, I think, as, as we said, all, be, what we seem to be agreeing on is that there is definitely a, a need and space to broaden and deepen the curriculum. The key question is, on what principles and for what reasons? I think that is really, really central here. And I would say that in education, when you're talking about the curriculum, we have to make the priority the disciplinary criteria. Now, in history, for example, there are, there are, you know, it is all about interpretations and reinterpretations. But these interpretations aren't just the arbitrary interpretations of individuals who kind of battle it out and whoever has the loudest voice, the loudest symbolic club wins. The people that win out, and it isn't just down to political power either. I mean, that might have something to do with it at some level, but it gets filtered down within the academy, within education. And, and there are historic, historic, historiographical principles and debates that need to be understood to, to make the selections for different stages of the curriculum and for the selection content in the, in the way Josephine pointed out. For example, one school of thought thinks you can get greater historical accuracy but the closer you are to the historical event, yeah, the immersion theory. The cleaner you are, the more you immerse yourself in all the empirical stuff around, the, the better, more accurate your version of history will be. But you take a, a different approach, say a more hermeneutic approach that Gadamer advocates, and it's no. He says you need a distance. You need a distance to be able to sift through and let more important things, to let the kind of scale of priorities of what is important and the interrelationships come to light. Now, okay. that work hasn't been done. That hasn't been done for ages. So in that sense, the curriculum is really poor. And I, when I first started looking at this, I'm all for it. it has to be improved. But that, rather than 
a moralistic address or making me feel better. You know, I couldn't, I will not feel better at school by seeing okay. more Indian people in the curriculum. And I'll get, I'll get, I, I want to ask you a question because this cuts the nub. Lots yeah. of students that I teach, right? You may say they're moralistic. I'm not sure that they're moralistic. They do want to talk about power and equality. When you talk about selection criteria and the experts and domain-specific division of knowledge, mm. they say, but power and equality influence that as well. And some of the speakers tonight have said that. Do you, what do you say to those people that say you're ignoring the question of power? Do you think that's a red herring and conspiracy theory or what? No, 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 of course I don't. You know, I mean, uh, no, no, it isn't. But I'm talking about... There, there, you talk, it depends, you know, you've got to be clear on, we've got to be clear on what, what kind of level of education we're talking about, the broad general institutions of education that are very close to political power, or kind of what goes on in, in, in academic disciplinary circles, which are fairly isolated from that, right? So let me give you an example. What is happening, what, is, what, hap what can happen when you let the disciplinary criteria slip? What can happen is this. 1834, Lord Macaulay decides that he's going to introduce um, a national system of education in India, right? English literature, and a whole, him and various other politicians sift through loads of books, and, you know, Indian people are going to get Shakespeare, Milton and Addison a good 50, 60, 70 years before pupils in Britain are going to get those writers on the curriculum. Now, that, that is commonly read. You read most accounts of that, modern recent accounts that have been influenced by um, um, not critical post-colonial readings and particularly by Edward Said's idea of the othering. And it, that, 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 that historical event is interpreted and presented as an unambiguous, straightforward imposition of colonial cultural othering by the British on, okay. on, on Indians. It wasn't that. Okay. Thank, thank, thank you, Alka. Gemma. Cool. Um, I would like to also agree with Alka and Tarjinda, and I'd like to say that I don't think it is the role of schools, all of teachers, to politicise students, to teach them left-wing politics. It's nothing like that. What I'm fighting for is for people to be given context. So, for example, when we're talking about the content of history, and we're talking about, for example, Churchill, which I only learned about because I did A-level history, I want to know what else he stood for. We were just taught that he was a war hero, but we weren't taught about all of the other things that he did that I mentioned in my speech. Um, and I would say that, again, it's also not the school's position to be putting students into boxes based on their identity. I think we should be universalist and we should teach them, but we have to teach them about different cultures and different ethnicities. And that is how we're going to make rounded indiv individuals. And that's how we're going to make autonomous thinkers by not just teaching them the truth, because sometimes there isn't a truth. History is about interpretation. But in order to get there, you need to be seeing different viewpoints and different examples of excellence from all different skin tones. And then this may undermine my point, but going back to the point about the Romans, I only found out today doing research that some Romans were black or had darker skin tones. And I was talking to friends the other day, I didn't even know the Romans came from Rome. So that's a whole other problem. But um, <laughs> I didn't know that there was black Tudors. I didn't know that there were black Romans. So we should be teaching this history. We should be talking about it, but we should also be showing that there were other people that were in the country before before slavery. Thank you, Jam. Right. We're going to go back out. 
And listeners who want to speak, I'm sorry if you hate me, but I'm going to make it be concise because we've got close to 20 people that want to get in. So let's take four or five or six contributions. Then we'll go back to the speakers again. Whatever you want to say, say it, but say it concisely. Cara. Oh, hello. Uh, so I'm a Chinese teacher, and I was interested that this topic has been pretty much only about history. Um, and I know that the debates are definitely happening in other subjects as well. So to all of the speakers, what do you, what do you think, how do you think other subjects should respond to this? Um, and then to, particularly to Alpha and to Arjinda, who have been most um, explicitly arguing for a universal history. How, is there a kind of, how can you have a universal history without mandating it? I mean, how can you have the freedom to teach as well as having a universal history? Thank you very much. Roberta, you're on. Can you hear me? No, speak louder. Can you hear me, shall I? Yes, can you hear me? You can hear me? Yes. Okay, um, I'm just maybe what would help decolonize. You got me? Yeah. We need to decolonize politics and then the curriculum would probably change because it's politicians who've no curriculum in 1987 and it's frustrated teachers ever since. However, I want to give one good point and one negative point. In the 80s at Brixton College after the riots and the UCOS fire, which was so badly covered by the media, in Brixton College we I introduced an access course to for black and female students to do film or photography degrees because there were no no blacks or females doing that at the time. We introduced multicultural literature. We had on Ilya an anti-racist maths group which the Guardian um, made ridiculed, but in fact now we've got Marcus Tosorta recognizing that it's very important that you can see mathematics culturally and historically. That's just three out of many examples. But what I'm saying there is under the right circumstances, it can be done. And it was done in accordance to what we felt the students wanted around at the time. A negative one is that my family part of them are Cameroonian. Cameroon was divided between the French and the British um, after World War I. It was taken from the Germans. And the French, the bigger half, uh, are the ruling party, and they have been slaughtering, burning villages, killing the Anglophones since, 19, uh, since 2016 because they wanted equal rights for their own Anglophones. And this country has hardly ever heard of Cameroon, which is an ex-British... Thank you, Roberta. You've cut off anyway. So we're now on to... If you write to the, fo the Foreign Office or the Commonwealth, they just say, oh, well, this one... Sorry? Uh, Harley? Sorry? Uh, that's it. I'm sorry, Roberta. We're on to Nigel. Hi, Kevin. Can you hear me? Not and clear, Nigel. Lovely to see you. Anyway, so I just want to ask two questions. So I don't want to take a lot of time up. Um, I would like to ask Gemma, for example, on the, the, the statement decolonization of a curriculum. I think it, in a sense, it's a very loaded term. For example, when you teach about, if you were to teach about slavery, you'd have to paint a very rich tapestry of, you know, for black slave owners, you know, we have descendants of slaves and, sorry, not descendants, say we have, you know, black people whose ancestors held slaves in other British colonies, not on British soil. Um, so my question is, isn't that a much deeper conversation that goes beyond what a normal GCSE syllabus would provide or be able to provide to most schools? And secondly, to Andre, um, 
or Gemma too, I suppose. Uh, da, 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 da. Bollocks. I've got one so many question, questions. One question is good, Nigel. If yeah, that's great, Kevin. Yeah, that's, I'm stumbling on my words. Thank you. No problem, mate. Thank you very much, Nigel. Harley. Hi, uh, two quick things. Um, uh, Gemma mentioned Jinnura Achebe, Things Fall Apart. Coincidentally, I've just read that, and that's not just because I wanted to show my woke credentials. It's because I asked my wife if she had something by an author I'd never read before, and that's what she gave me. Absolutely brilliant book. Uh, I'm really glad I did. But funnily enough, my wife was telling me that when she was at university in the late 90s, she wrote about it, and it didn't go down at all well with her right on lectures, right on being you know, the old version of woke, um, because it didn't have a sort of straightforward, simple, um, anti-imperialist uh, imperialist message. You know, it's ambiguous, it's nuanced, these space for the reader to think about what it's talked about. And my worry is that we won't get stuff like that in, in this new, in a new curriculum. We'll get the stuff that's very political and simple-minded. Uh, second point, very quickly, um, I'm not a teacher. I don't know what's on the history curriculum now, um, but isn't it naive to expect the state to teach kids ideas which criticise the basis of the state, if that's what you want? Um, I mean, after all, when the state first got involved in education in the 19th century, that was partly a reaction to the working classes setting up their own schools and teaching kids you know, about things like chartism and communism and socialism and things. So I know at least a few people in this room have been really fed up with aspects of history that they think have been missed or misrepresented. And what they've done, they've gone out and written books about it. And I don't know if you can see, um, I've just had, come across this pamphlet by a guy called Bernard Coard. Um, and it's about, uh, he, he was learned about uh, children of people arriving from the Caribbean um, who were sometimes unsettled, disoriented, classified as educationally subnormal, as the phrase was back then, and dumped in special day schools. Really angry about it, went and wrote this book, effectively self-published it and got an acquaintance who was in marketing to tell him how to promote it. And before, before long, he was on the TV and in the papers telling people about it. And in Things We Could Do For Ourselves, it's where it ends in there, Things We Could Do For Ourselves, the first one he says is set up schools and evening classes. I'm not sure I'll, I'll agree. I'm just reading this now whether with everything he says, but I do agree with that. Thank you. Guys, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Joan Fogel, Claire Fox, and then I'm going to go back I'm going to see if there's only two speakers that want to maybe come back and pick up things, go back out to the audience and let another two speakers come in. However, if all of our four speakers are down to get in, I will let you all speak. I'm just keen to get as many audience members in as possible. Joan, you're next and then Claire after you. Hi, thanks. I just want to say it's been a terrific talk. I think you've got a conference here, actually, because everyone's bursting. Um, I've really enjoyed it, especially Gemma and Andre, I have to say. I used to be a teacher, um, maybe once a teacher, always a teacher. And um, in my day, when I trained, I which is a long time ago, the one of the main things, and I'm agreeing here with Chrissy, Chrissy Raz before, about how you Chrissy. teach rather than what you teach. And I remember also about doing history. History is how you, how do you do history? I remember that vividly. And the importance of the way that the importance of youngsters being able to relate to whatever's being taught. So that links also to what Cara said about other aspects of the curriculum. So I'm very much with, and I'd like to hear people, you know, is that still the case? Are we still taught that as trainee teachers? Um, and how children can relate 
is by looking at their own lives. I don't think it's narcissistic to be uh, interested in oneself, as, especially as a child, um, and to start from there and see where you go on. Thank you, Joan. And Claire, you're on. Thanks very much. Uh, really enjoyed it as well. Um, Gemma mentioned Section 28, and I think it's an important reference because actually we all know that it's very dangerous when we start politicising the curriculum. And I suppose my dread is that the decolonisation issue is a politicisation of the curriculum rather than a, an open discussion about shaking up the curriculum. So how do we avoid the fact that the curriculum can become a political football. It's refreshing to have this discussion being so open because actually I've been involved in an initiative just launched last week called Don't Divide Us, um, which is about how we can stop uh, the, the identity politics dividing society up and our obsession with people's ethnicities and skin colour. And I, and I do think that the more we discuss and the more open we are, and as Kevin started off saying, without abusing each other or caricaturing each other, the better. So we've all got a lot to learn from each other. But we, that does require us being frank and open. So in the spirit of that, let me just say that I got into, um, I was very indignant when I was, and arrogant when I was 17. Some would say not much has changed. And <laughs> I remember having a row with my history A-level teacher and uh, shouting at him because he didn't uh, teach us about uh, Ireland, I'm second generation Irish, didn't teach us about, you know, I asked the class, who knows about internment? Who knows what about the uh, uh, the uh, partition of Ireland? I gave everybody a lecture on what they didn't know and what wasn't being taught. And Mr. Catamore, my history teacher, and I'm indebted to him, pointed out that uh, in the limited amount of time, it might be helpful if I did understand st stand the history he was teaching me and read a few books. The reason I'm mentioning that was because actually it was true that I was kind of very indignant about what I wasn't being taught. I wasn't quite on top of what I was being taught and actually you end up in a situation and this would be true I talked to a friend of mine who's a, a history teacher the other day who said that half of the class are from East European countries and this was mentioned in passing why are they not I mean why is there not a campaign to reintroduce to introduce East European history into the history curriculum in other words how do you decide and I, I asked that in good faith because I yeah. want to shake it up but if it's only representation yeah. that you want then you're actually going to end up with a trans curriculum a Polish curriculum and everything curriculum and nobody will understand history at all and historical thinking will be forgotten. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, a brilliant question. How do you decide? I mean, we're back to uh, epistemology, theories of knowledge, the experts, how much is political, what should the art of our nation be? How do you decide? Who's desperate to speak from our four speakers? Um, go, Tarjinder, go. You were the first one in the hand. Okay. Do you know what? I, I'm going to annoy everybody who's um, who was a right-on lefty teacher in the 1980s and 1990s. Do you know what? Already, already, the curriculum that I found when I went in has been considered to be politicised by the left already. Let's not let's not pretend that that's not that that didn't kind of happen because it did happen. Okay. So some of what was going on with Gove was a corrective back. So people are going, oh well, we've got to go back. And forth. We've just got to accept there are different points of view. And and by the way, the other thing I think at times what has happened. And, you know, I'm from the left originally and all the rest of it. The idea that racism was used as a kind of lever to get rid of some of the English history and some of the British history and just to undermine it, I think some of that went on. 
maybe my, my conception is wrong, but I feel like that's actually a viewpoint that needs to be put out there because that's one of the reasons why sometimes people get pushed back at the idea of black history or Asian history being put on because they feel like it's deliberately taking things off and I'm not entirely sure that they're wrong when they say that either um, but but the point is that I think it's good that we do have more of a consensus here than we think as in I think more people want to actually put more points on but we do have a limited amount of what of time to teach Things, and we have to take that into account. I hear you, Tarjinda. Alka, go for it. Okay. Well, I think just to push on what I think is um, perhaps at the heart of this, it's a difficult question and I'm not sure I've got the answer, but does a national government have the right to promote a national culture through schools? Okay. Because at the moment we live in a country where the majority of people are white. Now, in that case, you might then ask, if that's, if that's so, then from their point of view, why should they endorse um, changing the curriculum to include different cultures because of immigration patterns that have happened when the different people that are coming in are, still remain a minority? Okay, I, I'm just putting that as a question sure. that I've been thinking about too. And, yeah. and I think, for me, the only the way I can best answer that is that I, is precisely leads me to the position against the kind of bringing in different cultures approach, which is to say that when we say we want a universal history, it doesn't mean it's just like a bland sog, soggy mess. It means it's the history that can actually has a better capacity to explain an event in its roundness, right? So we can understand what Macaulay did in 1834 as a response to what was happening internally within Britain and within India at the same time. We can understand it as, you know, what was happening between church and state within Britain and the missionaries and regional Maharajas and the East India Company in India, right? So you've got about 10 different factors there. That is better history. That is universal history. Alka, I mean, thank you. Alka, thank very quickly, you. One thing. Very quickly, Alka. Windrush, by the way, was not, did not arise because people weren't educated enough, Right. That was that was a question of political power. It's about the government's authority to decide who becomes a citizen under what conditions and to police it. And they should be held held to account for that, not not because of any educational deficiencies. Thank you, Alka. Thank you, um, guys. Just before I go back out, I know there's a lot of young people uh, listening, uh, and I would say don't be shy. You're allowed to come in with a question or a re- really brief comment, Gemma. Can I go out? Are you dying? All right, go on, Gemma, make it fast. Sorry, I just wanted to come back to Claire and just say that I actually think it's doing the opposite. I don't think by decolonizing the um, curriculum, we can call it what we want, change the curriculum, decolonize the curriculum. We're all asking for a broadening of the curriculum. I think it's doing the opposite to politicizing it. And I would argue that the current curriculum is actually a victim itself of identity politics gone mad, because I would say that it has been used by the elite to try and get across a political purpose, such as my example before being taught about Churchill, how he was just a hero and not getting any context. Thank you. And now to go out, I see next in line is Joanna Williams, who's a good friend of the Education Forum. Joanna, you're up. Hi, Kevin. It's not actually Joe. I'm, just, I'm just using her camera. Is that... Yeah, okay. Jim, uh, I think doing? it was, sorry, <laughs> sorry to disappoint. Don't you worry. Uh, I think it was Andre. Andre earlier on uh, used 
used um, the example or mentioned the Haitian slave revolt, the successful slave revolt against the French. Truly a world historical event. And I absolutely agree, Andre, it's, it's such an important event. You'd like to see it, you know, more prominent on, on all sorts of uh, curricular universities or I teach as well. Um, completely agree with that. But I think the issue is, and there is a debate about this, in, maybe in schools, but certainly in universities, you know, how do you look at that and what do you teach about that? Uh, the best author, I think, on that is a guy called C.L.R. James, happens to be a black author who wrote The Black Jacobins, all about how that event was very much a human event, standards set by human societies that were denied to people who engaged in struggle to demand you know, human equality. And, and this was a very, very important period of you know, human history. But actually, when you look at the decolonized advocates in the universities, they're really crying that idea from um, CLR James, and they don't really have that on their on their reading list because the, the lesson they uh, take from that is that uh, black Haitians and white French people at that time inhabited different worlds, had different, what they refer to as different systems of knowledge, in effect, different histories. And I think this is the, the kind of politicization of history, really. It's not just about giving more visibility to important events, it's actually about looking at them in a particular and relativistic way that reinforces the idea that we are, um, you know, many people rather than one human humanity. And I think that's a real debate that the decolonizers need to have to in engage with, but they, but they don't generally engage with that. Yeah, and that's a great point. I, I hear you on that. A brilliant point, which Andre or Gemma or someone might want to pick up. Guys, can I tell you what we're going to do? Just so everybody knows. Um, I'm only going to take people uh, who haven't spoken yet. So I'm actually going to take um, Alex, Ian, Connor, Nico, and then I'm going to go to the four speakers and you will give 30, I'll give you a minute and a half to round up. That's where we're at. So it's 25 past now. That means we'll probably be finished by 20 to nine, quarter to nine. So Alex Standish, you're up. Thank you, Kevin. Um, firstly, just to broaden out from history a bit and give the example of geography, um, uh, geography is a good example of what Alka was talking about earlier, where disciplinary principles have been allowed to slip and it has been politicised um, for some time. So if you look at the curriculum today, I mean, there's some good geography in it, but also um, it's dominated by issues um, around environmentalism, climate change, fair trade, um, and often quite negative um, stereotypes in relation to uh, poorer countries and so forth. So I'm um, one of the, um, well, I, I'm, I'm a causation but it's, it's maybe only a relationship um one of the problems geography has is as you go through school up from gcc to a level and university actually there's very very low representation of uh, uh people of bme background so you know there 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 is a problem in geography um and i think it's got to do with the nature of the curriculum anyway i've got a sort of a, a, a separate question related again to what uh alpha was saying and, and claire um, so, um, I guess what what Alk was saying about you know the the nation setting a, a national curriculum and so forth for promoting the nation, um, curriculum is a conversation about truth, but it's also induction into a culture. So you know, curriculum does come from a perspective. Um, it is a conversation about who we are, um, what we believe in, our values, and so forth. And um, one of those is knowledge, and and truth truth is is another one. Um, so. Uh, you know, you would expect countries in Britain to speak, to, to talk about 
or to teach about British history, just as you expect people in Taiwan or the United States to talk about their history. Um, so, you know, you're going to have um, a perspective being represented there. Um, but obviously, over time, that conversation about who we are as a nation, as that nation changes through immigration, obviously, then, um, you know, that conversation needs to adjust. And so if you didn't include things like the Windrush generation, um, you know, you'd rightly be, be leaving people out. Um, and just finally, I guess also, you could say, as Josephine said earlier, I think that there's a change from primary school to secondary school as we get up towards A-level and so forth, which I think it, you know, surely it becomes less of a conversation about who we are and becomes closer to some of the disciplinary principles and there's room for more critique um, and, uh, you know, crit criticising narratives that maybe were presented less problematically, um, you know, lower down in the school. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, uh, next, we're on to yourself, Ian. Trying to unmute him. You might have to unmute yourself, Ian. Good. Can you hear me now? We yeah. can, mate. Yep. Um, this question about literature in the curriculum. Um, how important is it, do you think, to have a temporal distance between the text and where we are now? Um, so I'm thinking of a lot of the texts in the canon. They're quite old. They've been critiqued. They've been studied. They've been read. They've been thought about. Um, the, the problem with some of the texts being proposed for a new curriculum uh, Rennie Edo Lodge's uh, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. It's very recent. I mean, have we had enough time to digest, look at, think about it as a text ready to be sent out to GCSE students? Is that the benefit of the canon that it's a lot of it, the texts are older? That's, that's my question. Brilliant, mate. I, lo I love concise, pithy questions. They're brilliant. And uh, then we have Connor. You're up. Hey, yeah. Uh... Um, yeah, just on the, on the notion of historical examples where they apply to my subject, I'm a biology teacher. So, you know, not, not always the most historically literate, but occasionally I come across examples where I know a little bit of the history and we sort of have it interspersed with the science curriculum through a thing called working scientifically. So it's a little bit of this strand that contextualizes the science, or it's, at least it's supposed to. And I'd mentioned that to a few people before, but I came across an example on the old GCSE biology uh, with Edexcel. And I remember teaching something about plant disease. An example came up about the, uh, the, the potato blight in Ireland. And uh, it, it gave the impression, in fact, it almost stated it word for word, that the cause of Angora Moore, the Great Famine in Ireland in the 1840s was, was a fungus, was this potato blight. And to anyone with even a tiny degree of historical literacy, I dropped history after third year or what you call year nine in England. Um, I knew that it was actually to do with British policy in Ireland. And so I actually just thought, now this isn't about replacing the content. This is actually an example that's given. This is an attempt to contextualize some of the biology, which I just think was a very poor representation of causality. And that sort of, whether it's conscious or not, that yeah. account of causality in science has a historical and political dimension to it, which I find yeah. deeply unsatisfactory. I actually just thought it was bad science as well as bad history uh, because science encompasses all the causal pathways into a phenomenon. Yeah. And so to me, I guess that's sort of maybe a little bit suspicious at a point that Nathan made about just how rigorous historical examples are. And I can't comment on the history curriculum, but in terms of had I not had a little bit of familiarity with both the science and the history, you know, unique to Ireland, I guess I might have missed that. and I might have accepted that as an account. So I guess I'm just suspicious of the idea that there is always that rigor there 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually sympathetic to some of the arguments about, about the presentation. A really, really interesting from a fellow Irish and fellow Belfast man there. Really interesting debate. Um, and then we're on to um, Shirley. Okay, thank you. Um, I think some of the points have been made this evening. Um, really, I mean, it, it, it seems that any serious um, discussion of, it, of anything in education always goes back about how we understand the purpose of education. And I think that's really at the core of it now. And at, at various times, um, you know, education has been used as a stick, if you like, to beat people with in one way or another. And I think, sadly, um, what, we, what we do is abandon, really, any idea, as that, that Kevin mentioned, that education is fundamentally about transformation. It's not about asserting identity. It is about transforming young lives, indeed anybody's lives that participate in anything educative throughout their year, throughout their lives. Um, and at the present time, I think the, 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 the colon, decolonizing of the curriculum is being used um, in, in exactly the same way that other, other um the curriculum has been messed around with, if you like, in other ways, by being very instrumental in its, in, its, in its purpose, rather than looking at knowledge and trying to really, and I don't see too much wrong with what's the best that said and thought. And I think today, actually at this very moment, the curriculum's really under threat, albeit possibly even very short term, in saying that when schools go back in September, when my, a lot of schools are going to be reducing the curriculum. And it's humanities and arts, actually, that are really at risk of being completely wiped out, possibly for a short time. But it shows exactly what people see, the instrumental view that people have of, of mass education, it's just, you know, it's not about knowledge for its own sake and, and it, as being an enriching experience that helps to transform young people's lives. Um, modern languages is likely, is, is probably going to be one of the first to be hit because there's all sorts of other problems. And that window on the world is what actually could be really transformational. So what I'm saying is that the broader the curriculum, you don't have to decolonize the curriculum. It is, I'm just, I guess, reasserting what other people have said. It is about really enriching the curriculum and making sure that it is knowledge for its own sake. Jerry, thank you very much. Let me explain what's going to happen. Speakers, we're going to take two more people and that's it. Um, who haven't spoken. We're going to go for uh, Nicole uh, McDonald. And I think Nick or the two people haven't spoken. Then I want you to leave us with your final thoughts. And Andre, I'll give you a fraction longer than the others to speak when you round up because you didn't come in the previous time. Nico, you're up. Um, yeah, I wanted to observe that there seems to be a danger of looking at history as a way of judging people or peoples. Um, for their deeds rather than being objective and interested in history you know, for its own sake. And we're judging things that none of us are responsible for today and neither can any of us take any credit for you know, what's happened in history. And I think as the previous speaker said, the idea of knowledge for its own sake 
and inquiry um, should be preeminent. And it'd be interesting to ask people, I'm not sure this question has been very explicitly answered by the speakers about what's, what history is for, and picking up on one of Gemma's points, talking about what people did, it's certainly important to know what people did, the bad things and the good things, but also uh, I would argue why people did them, and people aren't always responsible for their deeds as uh, you know, their personal motivations are one thing, but there are broader historical forces which may have shaped you know, how Britain acted in India in the 1830s that Alka's been talking about, or how it acted in Northern Ireland in the 60s. Uh, and I think we need to see history as being not just about individuals, but about um, a kind of broader sweep of forces which shape history as well. Nico, I'm down to just ask you a question, if you could come back in one, maybe two sentences. Do you think that people should not judge people in history? Should we not make a judgment about Hitler, for example? I think the further back you go, I think you just get to a point where you say things that happened had a certain world historical inevitability about them. I mean, you know, there are things that could have changed what happened in Nazi Germany if the Russian Revolution had internationalized, perhaps that might okay. have prevented it. All right, the so further back you go, it just seems like, you know, would you judge, you know, Genghis Khan? You know, I know it's a stupid example, but no, I hear no. you. I hear you. Interesting. And um, I think we have Nick, who's the last speaker, because I'm not taking people who already spoke. So, Nick, you have the last word wherever you are. Can, can you hear me? We can. Okay, perfect. Uh, thanks to everyone who's spoken. It's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, I think there are still a lot of kind of difficult questions that haven't quite been uh, kind of maybe clarified, in particular whether decolonization is the same thing as broadening. Sure. I think we've assumed that it has. Now, uh, if that is the case, I'd all be in favour of it. I'm a history teacher myself. But I think the way we've seen events taking place in America and also in Britain suggests to me that there maybe is a more kind of politicised aspect to it uh, and that uh, the, the debate that, that, is, that a lot of people claim to want is a fairly one-sided one. And, but if we do broaden it, as I think is good, I think you know, what should the principle be of that? The number one problem with history, as I've seen uh, teaching it, is its fundamental incoherence there's for all the flaws of the kind of old island story that doesn't exist anymore and so pupils are just all at sea so for instance i think uh i think for speakers who asked for a more diverse history will be pleased to know that up and down the land uh new modules are coming out for example the marlinese empire and so on and the silk road but again these are kind of islands in a, in a kind of sea of ignorance where no one can really uh, understand their true significance. So it's a really difficult question what that principle should be. I suppose I would say uh, the nation would be the most manageable one at a school level. And Britain is fortunate in that we've kind of touched on every part of the globe. So you could probably get a good balance. Uh, so yeah, I suppose um, that's that's the main question. The, the other final one is whether history should reflect society as it is at the moment. I think that's an assumption that I've seen raised quite a lot. And I'm not so comfortable with history being used for kind of therapeutic purposes. Obviously, we want to give 
students feel like they have a place. You know, I have heard horror stories of people saying, uh, you know, I, I, the impression I get is that my ancestors were just slaves and you, know, you never want that to happen. But equally, you, know, you don't want to go down kind of the costume drama route where you kind of have diversity put in there, even when it's historically inaccurate. Uh, so, yeah, I suppose uh, that's all I've got to say. But thanks a lot for the discussion. Nick, that was a brilliant last contribution. Um, I thought that was really, really interesting. So, speakers, there's a lot on the table. I knew that when we organised this debate, we we're going to provoke more questions than probably resolve. Um, so you've got decolonising versus broadening the curriculum. Does it mean the same thing? How is it different? What should the principles be that underline history? Are we heading towards more incoherence in history? If we take up Gemma and Andrea's point, um, what about Nico's point about judging? To what extent should history judge? Uh, Shirley's point about transcending or affirming identity. What should we be doing with the curriculum? We've got that old chestnut sort of lingering in the background about power inequality. We've got Alka's point still hanging. Should it be up to the experts to define and decide how the curriculum shapes together? And we've got, should, should history reflect society or not? Are we in danger of history becoming therapeutic in the current climate? And suppose part of the criticism of Andre and Gemma was that they thought that history was being used to reflect society at a different time in terms of trying to make Britain greater than it was by bypassing some of its misdeeds. So we've got a lot of stuff on the table. You're not going to be able to do everything. Pick up what you think is the point you feel most strongly about or you think might shine a light on something. And I'm going to go in no particular order. I'm going to go Alka. Okay, thank you. Two, so two points, really. One, just one a political one, one more narrowly about the curriculum. I would, all I would just want to say um, to, uh, to Gemma and Andre and others is that, you know, when we say society changes, it doesn't just mean in the cultural makeup of the populace. The people in power, the forms of power also change. And at the moment, I don't know if you're familiar with, but if you're not, I'd really urge you to have a read some American historians where this debate is a lot more kind of developed in a way, who um, people like James Oakes, people like Adolf Reed, um, who are political um, economists, I think, but they, they're really, they do, they do point to a very important thing, but actually today you can see anti-racism is not opposed to the dominant establishment view. Anti-racism is the new form of a new elite. It's the ideology of a new forming elite, a section of the elite. So I won't say go into that now more, but please do, if you get a chance, have a look at it if you're interested. So Jinder, I don't agree it was just the left that politicised the curriculum, the right did it too in the 1980s, the multicultural curriculum was under the Conservative government. But the most important thing, I think, is the thing I think Ian, I think, brought up on the question of universalism. Because for me, the most destructive thing about the decolonising thing is that it really does smash that possibility of that because it is putting our experience above what we can do in terms of abstract thinking and um, intellectual and aesthetic engagement it is really saying the starting point for understanding ourselves and what we can do with knowledge and what we can do with education is our experience and you know nobody's going to have the same experience of, uh, as anybody else right we're going to be there's going to be a gap 
what goes into the gap, what makes it possible for us to transcend that, are the mediated forms of culture and symbols, one of which is disciplinary knowledge. So we have to hang on to that, not because, Kevin, the, the experts know it all and have to be God. They obviously live in society and will be responding to social changes. But the experts who, who know the disciplinary uh, criteria should have a large, large role to play in and, and it, what the, the finally, what it, the key thing, somebody mentioned the canon and tradition. You see, this is what is happening. This is being delegitimized in the way Gemma very kind of spontaneously and, and vividly described it as writing off the curriculum as um, old Palesdale and talking to a different time therapy for white people. You know, there's a lot wrong with the, the, the curriculum. But if we abandon the canon and tradition, we're not just abandoning some passive thing that's handed down that has magic power to confer authority. We're, we're actively rejecting the very thing that allows us to compare, to compare and evaluate and understand the present. We need a canon. It's not fixed. right? Every time a new book or a text enters the canon, um, it also changes the canon itself. You know, the order re-evaluates. If we bring in Chinua Achebe or if we bring in um, Derek Walcott's Omeros into the literary curriculum, right, that will have a reordering effect on what exists. So it's a vital, live, living thing. And if we get rid of it, which is what the difference between the decolonizing and the broadening approach, then we get rid of that possibility. It's a very dangerous path, path to go down, in my view. Thank you, Alka. And Tarjinder, uh, uh, no, let's go, sorry, let's go Gemma, and then we'll go Tarjinder after you, Gemma. Gemma, you're up. Okay, so first of all, I'd like to say that I just think overall it's unfair that some students get to learn some black history, others don't get to learn any. It's really hit or miss what teacher you're going to get or what school you go to. And this disparity in what education you learn, I think is so unfair. Um, secondly, coming back to Cara, I think made a point about how we're only really talking about history. And I agree, there's obviously a much bigger conversation to be had. I personally did drama A-level and I was researching a man called Ira Aldridge, who was an actor in the 18th century. And he was actually one of the top paid actors, even though he was black. And he in fact moved to Britain because he thought he was gonna get more opportunities in the UK. So I think our curriculum is kind of shooting itself in the foot as well, because there are some amazing things, well, there's a lot of amazing things about Britain, but there's a lot of stories where black people have come here for obviously greater opportunities, and that's something that needs to be celebrated. Um, and Nico made a point about um, how history shouldn't just be about teaching the good versus the bad, and I do agree that history needs to be about, um, it is about making different judgments, and it's about weighing up different, different viewpoints. But in order to do so, you do need to broaden the curriculum and you do need to have the context behind different figures so that you can come to your own viewpoint. And then lastly, I'd like to say that I do believe that decolonizing the curriculum is broadening and enriching the curriculum. Thank you, Gemma. And Tarjinder, you're up. Um, I think it's important, um, both for Andre and Gemma, to actually engage with some of the newer curriculums out there. I think that would be quite important. Um, I think it's really easy to get sort of stuck on your own experience and not to actually look at, hang on, is some of this development already happening? Um, I agree, it's hit or miss. Um, the question then would be, if we have a really prescriptive curriculum, that means that representations is off. Right. Like, so, so that's literally off the agenda. Like that's not going to happen at all because you would really have to make sure that everything was tight. 
Um, and you would have to somehow marry the interests of all these different groups. That's not going to happen. So we're going to make decisions and it won't be that you get the individuals that you're talking about. That might not happen still. So I think you need to sort of think a bit more about prescription versus looseness of the curriculum um, and sort of engage with some of those debates about how we create the curriculum just for yourselves. Because otherwise it's just a case of people making demands on us that we can never meet. And it'll just be endless grievance. Um, and I, I appreciate that people want to celebrate. Actually, actually the, the main thing I wanted to say was this. We're still avoiding it. People are still avoiding it. Family and community. They used to be your primary source of identity, of self-esteem, of representation. You do, like some of these things that people are trying to edge onto the curriculum, that's, that's what it was. And the breakdown of family and the breakdown of community has left a hole. And we can't just keep pretending that the school can somehow plug that hole. So we've got to actually almost say, okay, what, can, what should the school history curriculum do? And if that's not sufficient for the needs of what sort of, you know, some of the younger people want, they need to start to look at what else can do that. Okay, what else out is there? What other solutions are there? Because it cannot be that we have such a broad curriculum that it becomes so disjointed the children just don't get any sense of history. Because you, if, if I was to take into account everything that's been said to me, I would literally have one lesson for every single thing and the children just wouldn't really have a sense of history at all. It wouldn't be a proper curriculum. Thanks, Tarjinder. Thank you very much. Uh, last but not least, Andre. I guess I'd like to start by referring to Joan's earlier point, which I agreed with, um, in terms of young people seeing themselves reflected in education and the curriculum specifically, and the idea that it's not narcissistic. And I'd say that my passion in history as a subject and one of the reasons why I wanted to do it at university isn't necessarily because I picked up books outside of the classroom and that then motivated me to want to study history. I enjoyed history as it was presented to me in the curriculum. But not only that, like looking at horrible histories as a child, the stuff that they don't teach us at school, that's something that really stuck with me. Um, and I feel like when I'm talking about decolonizing the curriculum, it's not just about me wanting to see more of myself in the curriculum. I also feel like it benefits many white students across the country. This country is majority white and learning about other cultures that aren't their own will help them transcend their identity in the same way that people of color are expected to transcend their own identity when they're learning about British white national history. And then just to refer to Ian's point about, you know, some texts being so far back and then somehow we can benefit from this because they have, there have been so many debates on these, so it's going to be easier to teach or it's going to be easier to break down. I feel like the course to decolonize education now will essentially enable lots of these texts that are coming out within the past 20 years to then be the same text that I debated and challenged and questions until we actually start interacting with them somehow in the education system, then it's going to be the same content, the same knowledge recycled. And the status quo isn't really going to change that much. We can, we're going to continue learning about the First World War, but we're not going to look about the specific groups that might have played a role in that. And that's a narrative that's going to continue for who knows how long. Um, and then with Nick, um, I would definitely say that when I say decolonizing the curriculum, I'm saying that that's also broadening it. And the, one of the reasons why I believe that it's not necessarily about erasing, you know, one side of history so that we can present, you know, this, this non-Eurocentric side as a positive thing that gelled the, the globe together. I think it, that should also be introduced so that we can also question and criticize that, but not necessarily with the lens of Eurocentric values. For example, when people talk about slavery in Africa, 
we look at, we say, do, do people not know that black people or Nigerians were enslaving themselves? But then through looking at it with that lens, we're ignoring the fact that they also had their own systems of culture separate of race. They had, you know, their class, they had their own identities. So I feel like when we're looking at other systems, we also have to take into account how we speak about them. And when we talk about decolonizing how we speak about these things, I feel like that's one of the ways we can do it. Maybe we have to use race as a tool to then look at how we can deconstruct racial perceptions of the past or then policies that were introduced beyond that. Andre, thank you very much. May I just say a couple of last things, guys, before we wrap up for the night? And I personally pour myself a nice glass of wine. Um, I want to thank the people that you haven't seen behind the scenes. Um, there's Garth Sturdy, who's the guy who was ready to step in if my computer went kaput, which it normally does. And there's, of course, Harley, who's the man who was pressing all the buttons and basically makes everything happen for us. Without him, would be nothing. So thanks, Harley and Garth, behind the scenes. And guys, um, finally, if I could just say to the speakers, um, you have no idea when I got sort of the okay from our Education Forum Committee members to, or, to go ahead and organize this debate, you have no idea how much I was sweating, absolutely cold sweat and panicking in case this um, debate sort of went pear-shaped and we got people potentially screaming and shouting at each other. So I want to thank all four of you. I want to thank Alka and Tarjinda, and I want to thank Andre and Gemma for a civilized, fraternal um, debate. We, we listened to each other and all of the people from across the country who chipped in and spoke. And we didn't resolve uh, that much in one respect, but what we did was we listened and we gave each other a bit of food for thought. And I think that's a good start in this discussion. So I really want to thank you for giving up your time. I thought it was uh, well worthwhile. And on that note, I don't think I've forgotten anything. Just to say, everyone, I hope you got something out of it. And uh, it was a pleasure to be with you tonight discussing this um, topic. I know for sure it's not going away. So thanks a lot, guys, and all the best. Bye-bye.